Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and it is the time where we talk about science and skepticism, Um, mostly science tonight. And so uh, I just want to remind you that you can find uh, me throughout the week at the Facebook page for Evidence-Based Radio, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And so um, I actually had this story um, a couple of days ago that I had been reading through and I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, rainy and stormy on Friday night. So it'll be a great story to talk about. And boy, uh, there was a lot going on in Amherst this afternoon. And in fact, uh, Parts of the network went down at uh, where I work because of a lightning strike. And so we are going to start tonight by talking about that amazing force of nature, lightning. And so, yeah, there was some, there was some pretty amazing lightning this afternoon. Um, There was one flash that actually made us all jump. It was so bright and clearly so close. Um, And it was just really fascinating. Um, and so uh, we have talked about lightning before on the show. Um, and But the thing is, is that we still have a lot to learn about just how it works. And so researchers have actually learned a new thing about lightning. They've found the reason for why, contrary to popular belief, and in fact, people that I know still believed this up until this afternoon when we were talking about it, uh, that lightning strikes more than once in the same place. Uh, So yes, all of those, uh, you know, aphorisms and wives tales about how lightning never strikes twice. uh, They're all wrong. Lightning strikes twice, three times, many times. Places like, for instance, uh, you know, as a very uh, sort of intuitive instance would be lightning rods, (laughs) of course. And you could say maybe not in the same storm, but yes, in the same storm. So if you uh, ever watch, I'm sure there are videos of um, there is a lightning rod on the top of the Empire State Building, uh, for instance. And that was, um, you know, that's an example of a place that gets struck repeatedly all the time during the same storm, things like that. And so, but the thing is, is that we didn't know exactly how that worked before. So lightning is pretty mysterious. Uh, There's lots about it that we still don't understand, which is kind of crazy. Um, And again, that's one of the really cool things about science is that we know so much. And yet there are things that we don't know anything about um, and things we know some things about and some things that are just still a mystery. And so we know you know, the basics about lightning, uh, but we don't know exactly how some of the things that it does happen. And uh, for instance, ball lightning is still a pretty big mystery. Uh, We kind of know that it exists and we know some of the mechanisms for perhaps how it works, but it's also still really mysterious. And so uh, it is a legitimate reason why there's legitimate reason why sometimes when people say, you know, they saw something weird in the sky that people suggest ball lightning, because it's one of those things that is just kind of a catch all of like, see something weird, 
cool. Maybe it was ball lightning. (laughs) But let's get back to uh, this research about regular old fashioned lightning. And so a team from the University of Groningen has used the LOFAR radio telescope to reveal that negative charges inside of a thundercloud are not completely dissipated during the first flash, but that some ions are stored in what the researchers are calling needles, spaces near the leader channel that the electricity travels down. Um, And so these needles can allow repeated discharges to the same patch of ground. And so um, basically, if you've ever seen how lightning is jagged, so in those sorts of jags at those breaks in the uh, lightning flow, that's where these needles can store up the ions. And so lightning forms generally uh, from strong updrafts that generate static electricity in large cumulonimbus storm clouds. And so different parts of the clouds end up with different charges. So some parts are more positively charged and some parts are more negatively charged. And so once the charge separation is large enough, uh, you know, there's two parts of the um, cloud that have high enough differences between, uh, you know, positive and negative, that's when you get lightning. And so the lightning starts as a small area of positively charged ionized hot air, hot enough to be electrically conductive. This is then, uh, it basically grows into a forked plasma channel with the positive tip of the plasma collecting negative charge from the cloud, which is then channeled to the negative tip where the actual energy is discharged as a lightning strike. This finding is in sharp contrast to the present picture in which the charge flows along plasma channels directly from one part of the cloud to another or to the ground, explains Olaf Scholten, professor of physics at the KVI CART Institute of the University of Groningen. Now, the reason for this just being found now, uh, because, you know, we have been studying lightning for, you know, a little bit, um, Uh, you know, people will probably imagine when, uh, I feel like people sometimes imagine when I talk about lightning, you know, Ben uh, Franklin with a key on a kite, uh, just FYI, that probably never happened in real life. It was probably more a thought experiment than anything else. Um, you know, various cartoon versions of that notwithstanding. Um, and so, you know, we've been studying lightning for, you know, a couple of, a couple of years, uh, a couple of hundred years, in fact. <laughs> But the thing is, is that these needles are very small. And so they weren't able to be previously detected with other ways that we've studied lightning. So the researchers were able to see them because of the low frequency array or LOFAR, which is a Dutch radio telescope that actually consists of thousands of simple antennas that are spread across Northern Europe and are connected with a central computer through fiber optic cables. So again, like we talked about with um, the other big telescope, I believe it was last week, it's basically when you take a bunch of tiny telescopes, um, you can actually, actually a couple of weeks ago, we talked about another big array um, and that one's even 
bigger. That one is, you know, the one that's connected with, um, you know, the South Pole and Spain and Chile and other places. That's that's a that's on another level. Um, but this smaller uh, large telescope um, is connected, all of these small antennas are connected. And because they have really good, um, basically because the network is really good, because they're using fiber optic cables, they get enough, um, there isn't there isn't very much time dilation. And so they're able to take pictures using all of these antennas at the same time. Now, obviously, telescopes are generally used to look at and record data about objects in space. But the frequency range employed by LOFAR makes it useful for studying lightning because the discharges produce bursts in the VHF range, or very high frequency radio band. And so, um, you know, that's <laughs> so when you're, you know, uh, when lightning strikes and your TV flickers, <laughs> um, or at least old fashioned uh, broadcast TV, I should say, probably. And so the LOFAR stations, again, this is a pretty big uh, place, or a big area. It covers an area of almost, uh, or of over 1,200 square miles. And so it's a big array. And so it was able to because it's so large, it can detail these very small needles, especially since comparative to uh, what it's normally looking at, they're real close. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's very cool. These data allow us to detect lightning propagation at a scale where, for the first time, we can distinguish the primary processes. Furthermore, the use of radio waves allows us to look inside the thundercloud where most of the lightning resides, states Dr. Brian Hare, first author of the paper, who went on to explain that these needles can have a length of 100 meters and a diameter of less than 5 meters and are too small and too short-lived for other lightning detection systems. So I had no noted that before. Um, and so the researchers basically wrote an algorithm that allowed them to use LOFAR data to visualize the VHF radio emissions from two lightning flashes and allowed them to create a high resolution 3D image of those discharges, which is basically how they were able to see all these things that are happening in it. Professor Joe Dwyer of the University of New Hampshire uh, and another author on the paper notes that our new observation techniques show copious amounts of needles in the lightning flash, which have not been seen before. And so, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And again, lightning is very cool. It is an amazing natural phenomena. Also, you know, slightly terrifying, but as with much in nature, very beautiful, slightly terrifying. Um, and so, you know, I personally have always loved lightning. Uh, ever since I was little, my mom was always like, get away from the window. And I'd be like, but I want to see it. Um, and, you know, the other place that you can see lightning sort of on demand uh, is if you've ever gone to the lightning show at the Museum of uh, Science in Boston. Um, I've done that several times over the years as both a child and as an adult. And um, it's always great fun. Uh, they have a Van de Graaff generator, a humongous Van de Graaff generator um, that they use to produce lightning. And it's always a good time. So I do highly recommend it if you're ever uh, out that way. 
And so, yeah, um, hopefully everything is okay. Uh, I did hear a lot of uh, sirens this afternoon, so I'm hoping that nobody got hurt um, in this lightning because, again, uh, beautiful but also deadly, uh, potentially. And so I do hope that everyone is okay out there and uh, that all of the networks will eventually uh, roar back to life. Uh, I think that some things, some of the infrastructure actually got fried, so uh, they will have to do some actual replacement of parts, which is, you know, a danger of lightning storms, unfortunately. Okay, so let us move on. And so, um, weirdly enough, I didn't really mean for it to kind of happen this way, but uh, most of the stories tonight are kind of hit the highlights of things that I often talk about. Uh, so this first one is a story about one of our recurring themes, which is discovering new things that have been hidden, basically, or forgotten about, more likely, uh, in museum collections. And so researchers from Ohio University have rediscovered the fossils of a huge predator from Africa. And so the new specimen named Simbakubwa Kutok Af... Let me try this again. Simba Kubwa Kudo Africa uh, <laughs> has been described from a set of fossils that included most of a jawbone, portions of the skull, and parts of the skeleton, and really huge teeth. Um, so just giant fangs, apparently. And uh, so the skeleton is a 22 million year old specimen, and it was actually dis discovered decades ago in Kenya, um, where researchers were actually looking for the remains of ancient apes. And so the remains were kind of placed in a drawer in the National Museum of Kenda Kenya and basically forgotten about um, until Dr. Nancy Stephen and Dr. Matthew Borths, uh, at the time both at the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Ohio University, rediscovered them and realized what they represented. Opening a museum draw, we saw a row of gigantic meat-eating teeth, clearly belonging to a species new to science, said study lead author Borths. Now, Simbakubwa um, is Swahili for big lion, Simba, uh, you know, Lion King. <laughs> and so uh, basically, they assume that much like lions today, these animals would have been at the top of the food chain, because again, giant predator teeth. <laughs> And uh, so Simbakubwa was not, however, actually related to big cats um, or any of the other mammals that roam the uh, continent of Africa at this point. It was actually a member of an older and unfortunately now extinct, though probably fortunately for this guy, uh, lineage of animals called hyanodonts. And so they were actually the first mammalian, mammalian carnivores in Africa. And for around 45 million years after the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs, they ruled Africa as apex predators. But after having ruled the continent uh, for some period of time, unfortunately, uh, plate tectonics 
uh, kind of ended their fun, um, eventually at least. And so uh, plate tectonics took place. And as you know, uh, you know, the all of the continents are moving and shifting all of the time. It's very slow. Uh, but again, 45 million years, that's enough time for the uh, for what actually ended up becoming the Eurasian uh, continent to sort of fuse with the African continent. And so um, at one point before uh, the Suez Canal was, uh, I believe it's the Suez Canal that actually um, bifurcated them, but at one point sort of all three continents were technically connected to one another. Um, and so that led to a mixing of the flora and fauna um, from continents moving into new territories. So things came down into uh, Africa and the African species did move up into more northern climes as well. It's a fascinating time in biological history, Borf says. Lineages that had never encountered each other before never encountered each other, begin to appear together in the fossil record. And so Kudo, uh, Kutok Afri Africa is Swahili for coming from Africa. And so Simba, Simba Kubwa is the oldest of the giant gigantic hyenodonts, uh, which almost certainly did originate in Africa, because that's where we find the oldest fossils of them. And so they would have then spread northward. And it actually turns out that the descendants of Simba Kubwa uh, actually did flourish for millions of years further. Um, unfortunately, they did, again, ultimately go extinct. So between 18 and 15 million years ago, the ecosystem began to change rapidly, with forests giving way to more uh, grasslands and new mammalian lineages evolving to fit those new niches. We don't know exactly what drove hyenodonts to extinction, but ecosystems were changing quickly as the global climate became drier. The gigantic relatives of Simbacupa were amongst the last hyenodonts on the planet, uh, Borf's notes. And so this predator, you know, it had a really good run and it was big and it was scary. Uh, apparently it was larger than a polar bear. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're probably just as happy that this uh, lovely animal went extinct as we are that, for instance, you know, T-Rex went extinct um, or Smilodon went extinct, the uh, uh, also known as the saber-toothed cat. Um, you know, we're probably much better off <laughs> not having to deal with those kinds of animals because um, they probably would be very fierce. I mean, uh, no one, no one smart messes with a polar bear. Um, <laughs> so yeah. But um, they were pretty amazing. And it's really cool to find, you know, this new species that hadn't been found before and that was just kind of languishing in a drawer. This is a pivotal fossil demonstrating the significance of museum collections for understanding evolutionary history, notes Stevens, uh, who is a professor in the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine uh, at Ohio State and uh, also a co-author of the study. Simba Kubwa, Kubwa is a window into a bygone era. As ecosystems shifted, a key predator disappeared. 
heralding Cenozoic faunal transitions that eventually led to the evolution of the modern African fauna. And so, you know, basically they died off and then in came sort of the megafauna that we know today in Africa, lions, cheetahs, wildebeest, all of the good things, uh, both predator and prey. Um, and so, yeah, very interesting. And um, the the drawing, the the artist rendering, because of course, again, we only have a few pieces of the skeleton. Uh, so you do have to do some creative work uh, to figure out what you think it might have looked like. But it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying. Uh, not gonna lie. Um, I think it does. I think I would say it looks more like Smilodon uh, pictures, uh, saber-toothed cat pictures, and it does say uh, a lion. Um, but yeah, very interesting and very cool to be able to sort of think about it having existed and again, not existing today. <laughs> All right, so let us actually move on now. And um, this is tangentially uh, about another favorite topic on the show, uh, which is the ocean. Um, you know, I say only tangentially because it's really about viruses, but uh, they're from the ocean. So we're going to we're going to call it a story about the ocean. Uh, and so a team of researchers have basically traveled around the world, sampling the ocean from pole to pole and have discovered almost 200 thousand uh, populations of marine viruses. And so the data comes from 146 samples taken on several expeditions aboard the research schooner Tara. And it includes 41 samples from a 2013 trip to the Arctic Ocean. Now, we actually know that microbes make up most of the biodiversity and frankly, half of the biomass in the ocean. Uh, so, you know, single-celled organisms, uh, tiny little things, they're, they're, I mean, the ocean is honestly chock-a-block full of them. Um, again, half the biomass. Uh, but we know less about the amount and diversity of viruses, which of course affect microbes. So an international team of researchers led by Anne C. Gregory and Ahmed A. Zaid of the VIBKU Leuven University in Belgium and Ohio State University set out to create a global catalog of marine viruses that will allow them to research the diversity, function, and impact of those viruses on uh, that microbial biomass. And so the team discovered 1,000 uh, sorry, 195,728 populations of viruses, uh, which is actually 12 times more than a previous analysis on a smaller data set had suggested were out there. And so they sorted the viruses into uh, what turned out to be five meta communities uh, that ended up being based on ecological zones. So it turned out that uh, it was really about kind of the zone that the uh, viruses were found in rather than um, their latitude as far as, you know, things in sort of mid-latitudes. It didn't matter that they were, they weren't all grouped together because they were in mid-latitudes. They were grouped in um, sort of the zones of the ocean. So there was an 
Arctic, um, as far as the poles go, there was an Arctic group, there was an Antarctic group, but then there was a deeper than 2000 meters, 150 to 1000 meters, and a temperate tropical waters, uh, which are depths of one to 150 meters. And so um, that was actually slightly surprising that there wasn't a uh, specific diversity based on latitude. Now, the research is important because microbes are a key driver of the ocean's biochemical processes. And again, viruses infect and affect microbes. And so knowing more about these viruses can also potentially be a wellspring of genetic information. And so that could actually lead to information that's helpful to humans, for instance, uh, but also will help us in maintaining, hopefully, uh, some of the ocean's biodiversity and working on keeping it healthy as much as we can, um, even though we're not doing a great job of it right now. Um, but like with anything else that we haven't plumbed yet, uh, some of the research that could come out of this could potentially involve new antibiotics, for instance, uh, or new and novel drug treatments. So um, part of the, you know, part of the sort of uh, selfish, uh, you know, selfish to human argument for biodiversity is that every time we kill something that we haven't studied, that could potentially have been something that could have helped humans. So um, there was a movie, a really schmaltzy movie, uh, I think in the, like the mid 90s, um, about basically, I can't remember what it was called. Oh, it was, I think it was called Medicine Man. And it was about the idea that, you know, we're destroying the rainforest and there could be all these cure for, cures for cancer that we're just destroying. And, you know, it's, it's a little hyperbolic and that movie was a little bit over the top, but it's not entirely wrong. Um, and so we have to kind of figure out what's going on in these things because there could be uh, you know, novel proteins and novel, uh, you know, genetic sequences out there that could actually really help us. And if we don't know they're there and we destroy them, then we will never have access to them. And so it is important to do this kind of work. Now, of course, even with this immense amount of new data, the picture isn't complete. So the researchers were only able to identify those viruses that contain DNA. They weren't able to collect viruses that contain only RNA. And of course, it's also a snapshot in time. So if the collection was made at a different time, there could have been different results. For instance, there had been that other um, collection there was another collection where they got less. Um, and that might have just been because it was a different time. And so, you know, this is part of my sort of, uh, one of my old saws about the fact that there is so much diversity in the ocean and so many organisms and so much going on, uh, so many organisms and viruses, apparently, that we've only begun to scrape the surface of our understanding. And now I say organisms and viruses, because um, just as an aside, in case uh, you don't remember sort of uh, high school biology or um, want a refresher, uh, viruses really are unique. They're not really alive by a standard definition, and yet we sort of talk about them as 
being alive. Um, they can't reproduce without a host that is actually alive and is doing kind of all of the work for them. And so, yeah, they're weird. A minimal virus is a parasite that requires replication in a host cell, says Jacqueline Dudley, a professor of molecular biosciences at the University of Texas at Austin. The virus cannot reproduce itself outside of the host because it lacks the complicated machinery that a cell possesses. And so they actually are pretty much consist of a strand of either RNA or DNA. So RNA is a single strand of uh, nucleic acid uh, pairs or uh, nucleic acid uh, nucleotides and DNA is the double helix. And so it's either RNA or DNA and they're surrounded by a capsid, um, which is an outer casing of protein. And that's sort of the basic plan of a virus. Now, sometimes they can have a second layer called an envelope, which is generally composed of cells from the host that are modified and repurposed and can help the virus to avoid detection uh, by the body's immune system. So for instance, HIV is really hard to combat because it has this envelope and it was constantly changing the envelope. It's constantly evolving ways to change the envelope so that it's hard to pin it down to find ways to combat it. All right. So, um, yeah, viruses, weird. <laughs> it's kind of what that comes down to. Um, and on that note, let us take a break and uh, do some uh, promos and uh, some PSAs. And we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, monsoons and what tiny, tiny, itty bitty shells can tell them, tell us about them. So do stay tuned uh, for that Hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. 
To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out! Look out! <gasps> oh, my God. Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No, genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play, but kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and author of more information than you require, speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. And we are back. Um, I know that's kind of an old poll, but I still love that John Hodgman uh, ID. And so, yeah, I do like playing it. Okay, anyways, let us talk about shells and monsoons. And so basically, what it comes down to is there are these tiny shells uh, called ostracoda, and they are helping researchers to unlock the secrets of the East Asian summer monsoon. And so uh, basically, these shells have built up at the bottom of Lake uh, Nakakumi, uh, in southwest Japan, 
And so they are able to read the signs in these tiny arthropod uh, remains, which have been storing information on the effects of sunshine and climate shifts for almost 500 million years. The mechanisms driving the variation in East Asian summer monsoons remain unclear, so we used the oxygen isotopes from adult ostracode shells to reconstruct the variations over the last 3,000 years in southwest Japan, said Katsura Yamada, paper author and a professor in the Department of Geology and Faculty of Science at Shinshu University. And so the team took cord sections from the lake, and uh, basically they took samples from various points in those cores, uh, and throughout the last 3,000 years worth of buildup of these tiny little shells. And what they did was they then measured the ratio between different oxygen isotopes in those shells, which allowed them to understand more about the atmosphere's precise composition at the time that the shells were being grown. And so different amounts of nitrogen in the atmosphere create different ratios of oxygen isotopes that are captured within those shells. And so by studying the record left in the shells, the researchers were able to tell that the centennial scale variations, uh, basically over 100 year intervals, give or take, uh, which is a, a time scale that you can actually kind of see real patterns on, uh, you can't necessarily see it over, you know, a decade, but when you when you sort of uh, zoom out onto the uh, centennial scale, it's a little bit easier to see that it's actually driven by solar activity called insolation. Our results and compiled data propose that insolation, um, spelled I-N-S-O-L-A-T-I-O-N, not insolation, um, insolation vari variation was a primary factor of the centennial scale East Asia summer monsoon, monsoon variations, Yamada said. However, dominant factors affecting the variation can shift according to the solar insolation decreases. So basically, during sunny periods, insulation is what causes the majority of monsoon patterns. But during cool, cooling periods, especially around glacial ice ages, other factors such as wind patterns uh, would have come to dominate the cycle. Now, the researchers are hoping to move on from that and to clarify the relationship between the monsoon variations and other climactic phenomena. And of course, you can imagine this is pretty important uh, as climate begins to become more unstable, uh, as we start to see more rapid changing, uh, knowing kind of anything about how these monsoon seasons uh, will affect uh, the region can be helpful. Um, because basically what happens is that when you have these really hard monsoons, you get places that end up flooded and other places that end up with drought conditions. Um, and so if you have a normal rainy season, everyone's pretty okay. But when these monsoon cycles get going, it can be um, really devastating. And so um, we've definitely seen that in our lifetimes. Some of these devastating monsoons have come through East Asia. And so, um, you know, being able to sort of get a grip on how this is being affected on a larger scale might be able to help us then 
uh, sort of warn people or help people adapt on the, uh, you know, shorter uh, time period scale. So that is very cool. And I just love the fact that these tiny, tiny little shells can tell us such interesting and important things about the world around them. Um, and that's one of the things that I really love. Um, so another uh, sort of highlight of things that I like to talk about is this idea of being able to pick something up that you would never think would be able to tell you such important things about the, you know, a t that a tiny shell could tell you about the atmosphere at the time that it was created. Um, you know, someone who is a biologist or, uh, you know, someone who is a uh, geologist, perhaps, who studies you know, limestone um, might be able to know that. And in fact, I went to a great talk about limestone on Monday. Um, and I'm hoping I need to uh, connect with her, but I'm hoping that I will be able to have um, the uh, speaker on the show at some point because she had some amazing stories. And um, I learned a lot actually about limestone that I didn't even know. Um, and I consider myself kind of a rock person. So it was very cool. And so, yeah, um, but that's a, that's a TBA. <laughs> um, so let's move on to our next story for tonight. Now, again, this is kind of a highlights tour. So we are going to talk about Mars for just a second. NASA has announced the possible detection of a Mars quake for the first time by the InSight lander, which is a pretty big deal. <laughs> now, we know that parts of InSight are still having some issues. Uh, unexpected rocks are making, you know, our lives all a little bit sadder. Uh, but the main ultra-sensitive seismometer is doing just fine. And so that's kind of the main part of the InSight lander is that seismometer and the instrumentation around it. And so NASA believes that on the 6th of April, it recorded the first Mars quake. And so this would be the first seismic activity ever to be recorded on another planet that was caused by actual geological forces rather than an impact from a meteorite or high winds. And so that is, again, pretty exciting. We've been waiting months for a signal like this, said SEIS team lead Philippe Longuenet in a press release. It's so exciting to finally have proof that Mars is still seismically active. We're looking forward to sharing detailed results once we've had a chance to analyze them. And so I don't have a lot of information about it, obviously, but we have some sort of, you know, exciting it's it might be a thing kind of uh, information. So we'll have to probably circle back if they find anything really interesting about that uh, Mars quake. Uh, and so basically, one of the interesting things that they noted is that the strength and duration was comparable to moon quakes detected during the Apollo missions. So we actually have measured moon quakes, but never on another planet. And uh, Another thing to note, though, is that the quake was quite small. Uh, it would have barely registered in a seismically active place on Earth, like, say, for instance, Southern California. Uh, but it was a quake, almost certainly. And so while quakes, earthquakes on Earth are caused by um, friction along the edges of tectonic plates, 
Mars quakes are actually more likely caused by cycles of cooling and contracting, which create internal structures strong enough to rupture the crust and thus create a Mars quake. Now, Insight is hoping to learn more about the Martian interior from studying these tremblers. Insight's first readings carry on the science that began with NASA's Apollo missions. We've been collecting background noise up until now, said Insight Principal Investigator Bruce Bannert from NASA's JPL. But this first event officially kicks off a new field, Martian seismology! Exclamation point. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, he's pretty excited too. And so uh, actually... Interestingly enough, signals were recorded on March 14th, April 10th, and April 11th, but those are not considered to have been strong enough to have been actual quakes, uh, and so their origin is still under investigation. And they were actually picked up by an even more sensitive uh, um, apparatus on the InSight lander, so that is the Very Broadband Sensors. And so that instrument is uh, separate from the SEIS, which is the one that recorded the actual quake. And again, it is so good to be getting this kind of, uh, you know, science and this kind of data from InSight because, you know, it was a little bit of a bummer for all of us when we found out that, uh, you know, that rock was uh, basically in the way of the hammer that was trying to get the uh, second instrument of insight into the ground so that it could do its work. And so that's, um, you know, that's a little bit disappointing, but uh, we will all survive. And, um, you know, I think it should be okay. Um, And so we're still going to get a lot of great um, information from insight. And so yeah, it's very exciting. And so we're learning a little bit about insight, but we're also learning things about just literally the universe itself. And so it turns out that uh, once again, we have to talk about how we're not exactly sure what's going on with the universe as a whole. (laughs) And so it turns out uh, that it's basically kind of going faster than we expect it to. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little baffling. We're a little bit conser- confused, but they're going to work it out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. Uh, new measurements from the Hubble Space Telescope have confirmed that the universe is expanding around 9% faster uh, than it should be based on calculations extrapolated from uh, the Big Bang. This mismatch has been growing and has now reached a point that is really impossible to dismiss as a fluke. This is not what we expected, says Adam Rice, Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Johns Hopkins University uh, and the project leader. And so uh, Rice and his team called SHOES or Supernovae Hydrogen uh, for the Equation of State. Not the best acronym, but you know, hey. Uh, (laughs) And so they analyzed light from 70 stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a neighboring galaxy, with a new method that allowed for faster images to be obtained of the stars. 
And so they particularly targeted stars, uh, which are called Cepheid variables. And so these actually brighten and dim at predictable rates. And so those allow astronomers to measure the distances between intergalactic objects. And uh, by the way, these stars were discovered by the amazing astronomer Henrietta Swan Leavitt, uh, who I've talked about before and who was one of those women who um, I'm very passionate about, who a lot of men tried to basically ignore her slash steal her work. Uh, and, you know, um, especially that happened a lot in the early days of astronomy. Um, not going to lie, the early astronomy, uh, especially in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, a little bit problematic. Um, <laughs> there were some women doing some really great work that they were not getting credit for. Um, and Henrietta did some amazing stuff. So um, if you want to read up on a really cool uh, early astronomer, uh, she is definitely someone I would recommend. But anyways, let's get back to the actual story. <laughs> And so uh, before this new technique was developed, imaging the stars was actually pretty time consuming. Um, in fact, extremely time consuming uh, on these sorts of scales that they are that people would like to be working on. And so basically Hubble uh, in its sort of natural state can only observe one star uh, for every 90 minute orbit around the earth. And so basically you get one star and then you have to go around the earth and then you get another and you have to go. So yeah, a um, little bit frustrating. However, uh, using the new method called DASH or drift and shift, a better acronym, uh, the researchers were able to use Hubble as a uh, basically a point and shoot camera to look at groups of Cepheids, uh, which allowed the researchers to observe a dozen of the stars in the same time it would traditionally take to capture just one. And so this allowed them to strengthen the foundation of what is called the cosmic distance ladder, which is used to determine distances within the universe and to calculate the Hubble constant, which is a value for how fast the cosmos expands over time. And so combining data from the Hubble telescope with observations from the uh, Aracaria project, which is a collaboration between astronomers in Chile, the US and Europe, the team made distance measurements to the large Magellanic cloud by observing the dimming of light as one star passes in front of the other, uh, or transits um, in front of partners in eclipsing binaries. Uh, so they have these eclipsing binary star systems, and you can sort of see one star going in front of the other, and that diminishes the light from that from the star that's kind of behind the other star um and so with this data they were able to tighten uh, the understanding of the ladder which also uses supernovae to extend deeper into space and so the hubble constant remained at odds with the expected derived value from observations of the early universe's expansion based on the European Space Agency's Planck satellite, uh, which based its conditions uh, um, on observations from 380,000 years after the Big Bang. This is not just two experiments disagreeing, Rice explained. We are measuring something fundamentally different. One is a measure of how fast the universe is expanding today as we see it. The other is a prediction based on the physics of the early universe and on measurements of how fast it ought to be expanding. If these values don't agree, there becomes a very strong likelihood that the 
that we're missing something in the cosmological model that connects the two eras. That's a big deal. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they are not exactly sure why the discrepancies exist, uh, but the team will continue to fine tune their version of the Hubble tel- constant, uh, the Hubble constant, excuse me, in order to reduce the uncertainty of their uh, calculations to 1%. So they've actually already reduced it from 10% in 2001 to 5% in 2009. And currently in the latest study results, they've got it down to 1.9%. And so they want to get it down to 1% before they start really, you know, trying to figure out what on earth is going on. But again, uh, just because we don't understand why the universe is expanding faster than we thought it should be, that doesn't mean we don't have the answers to anything or that we can't discover the answers to what were initially complete mysteries. So let's uh, finish up tonight with a mystery solved. Uh, So let's talk about Steve. Um, So we've talked about Steve before. Uh, Steve turns out to be another acronym, even though technically At first, he was just Steve. Uh, And so three years ago, a new kind of glow uh, basically was observed and it had shown up before, but this was kind of the time that people realized it was out there. Um, And so it showed up across Canadian skies three years ago, and it wasn't the usual kind of aurora. It was actually uh, something more purplish and unexpected. And so researchers have now announced that they know what causes Steve, uh, which, is, which are ribbons of reddish purple and green that streak across the sky and are uh, magnetic waves, winds of hot plasma and showers of electrons that appear in the areas where they weren't meant to be seen in. And so basically the phenomena c- creates towering a towering vertical band of purplish or greenish glow. And sometimes that's accompanied by a column of short bars that look more like a picket fence. And so Steve was first observed visually on July 25th, 2016, and named uh, Steve after, uh, apparently, after the hedge in the movie Over the Hedge, which I haven't seen, but apparently when the animals find this hedge, they name it Steve. And so people named this Steve. Um, Whimsical. (laughs) Anyways, uh, astronomers adopted the name, but created an acronym for it. Uh, So they turned just Steve into the Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement, um, or Steve. And so a new study combines research from satellite data gathered in 2008. Again, we kind of, they went back and they found that this had happened before people just hadn't realized what it was. And so uh, with ground observations from two other uh, Steve events to determine what is causing the phenomena, it turns out that Steve is caused by friction as hot plasma flows and powerful magnetic waves arc around 15,000 miles above the earth. Heat from the friction energizes particles so that they produce that purple light, uh, similar to the way that incandescent light bulbs are illuminated. And so aurora glows are caused by electrons and protons falling into Earth's atmosphere from the solar wind. The Steve atmospheric glow comes from heating without particle precipitation, study co-author B. Gallardo Lacourt, a space physicist at the University of Calgary in Canada, said in a statement. 
Now, however, the green picket fence display actually forms the same way that auroras do when electrons rain down on the upper atmosphere, but it still represents a unique event given that the given the southern latitudes at which it is seen, so southern from the poles. And it actually turns out that the distinctive picket fence display is also visible in both the northern and southern hemispheres at the same time, which shows that the energy source fueling Steve is large enough to create displays at the same time in both hemispheres, which is pretty crazy. Now, one mystery does remain. Researchers still aren't sure how Steve manages to be seen so much further south uh, than those typical auroras. And so, yeah, weird. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, I will be back next week with more weird and wonderful stories. Uh, Have a great week. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.